Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from the founders who are building them. It's me, your host, Becca Skutak, and I'm joined by the lovely... Dominic Midori Davis. Dom, how is it going? I am doing good. How are you? I am doing good. I would probably mention we always record these on Friday, so I am looking forward to the weekend. How about you? Oh, I am so looking forward to the weekend. I'm not going to do anything. I'm going to read a book, and that's it. Not going outside. That sounds amazing. So today we have on Tigrin Sloyen, the co-founder and CEO of CodeSignal, which is an assessment platform for technical hiring. And as always, before we begin, we have our two truths and a lie. So listen very carefully and see what is the lie? What am I lying about? Okay. Is it that Tigrin holds the record for most medals from math competitions in Armenia? Is it that he was actually a poor student? Or is it that CodeSignal's new AI tutor is a golden retriever named Comet? Ooh. All of those sound super interesting. So, dear listeners, you will have to keep listening to find out which is the lie. Here is our conversation with Tigran. Hey, Tigran, how's it going? Hi, Becca. Going great. How are you? Oh, hanging in there. We're recording on a Thursday, so almost the weekend, Friday, Junior. (laughs) But we're pleased to have you on the show today. We should probably start by giving the listeners a little bit of an idea about what code signal is, if you want to kind of tell us more. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. About code signal, we are a company on a mission to discover and develop the skills that will shape the future. What that means is we try to solve the so-called talent problem. And what I call the talent problem is this idea that talent is the most precious resource humanity has. Because everything we know from this recording to the mics we're using to the electricity has been at some point created by a skilled and talented human. And humans are the ones that are going to solve all the problems that humanity is going to face in the future. But as a society, as a group, we don't do quite well with either building skills or helping people live up to their potential or even identifying them when people do live up to that potential, unless it's somehow reflected on their resume, you can easily pass on somebody who is highly skilled, highly capable. And I started the company almost seven years ago with that idea of what if we could change it? What if we could make it more streamlined, easier and straightforward, both to build skills as well as identify skills when humans have them? And I know the first thing that stuck out to me about this is especially the piece where you guys work with companies and they can obviously use this like testing software to test people's skills in the hiring process. So Mm -hmm. as Dom probably also knows very well, over here in journalism land, we do these edit tests generally when you apply for a job. And I'm curious with CodeSignal, what was the process before that? Like the customers you work with, like how could people test these skills prior to using your product? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, it's funny you've mentioned the edit test because ultimately the simulation of the job is the right way to understand signal, right? Because you want to see, can I simulate an environment in which I'm asking the person to do the job and I see whether they're doing it, they're good at it or they're not good at it. And most organizations before we came along reserve that for an in-person type of conversation where 99% of applicants would get cut out just from a resume, right? Because simulating a work-related environment, evaluating whether somebody's actually doing well or not, it's a hard job. And I would imagine in journalism still, that's kind of how it happens, right? Because doing an edit test with everybody would be way too much of a time investment. So you first got to have a pretty good looking resume or somebody must have recommended you, then you can get the chance to demonstrate your skills. 
in some sort of an in-person or a one-on-one conversation or something where a someone from that company has engaged with you to conduct that test. So our goal was how can we make this more scalable so more people can get the chance to demonstrate their skills. So that instead of 99% getting locked behind their resumes, it could be maybe 80% of people get the chance to demonstrate their skills. The equivalent of an edit test in technical roles would be, you know, I can build something. I can build you a front-end website. I can build you the back-end of it. I can build you a data science model that can predict things. Anything that demonstrates my skills specifically for the job that I'm applying for. And how did you get interested in wanting to build this type of a product to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question because it goes pretty deep. I heard you all like founder stories. So I'll take you through the journey of (laughs) how I became obsessed with the talent problem. As many of the listeners probably know, I grew up in Armenia, which is a small country in Eastern Europe. And I grew up in the 90s where that was probably one of the toughest periods in country's history in almost 100 years. Because when I was only four years old, the country had experienced a massive political and economical revolution, economic revolution. You had 100% inflation. These days in the US, we talk about 8%. Oh my God, oh my I'm God. like, yeah, I've seen 100, where the <laughs> things were doubling in price pretty much overnight. And it was economic blockade. So you had no light, no electricity, no heat. And worst of all, Armenia gets New York City style winters. I'm in New York City 10 years ago because New York City has gotten warmer. 1990s style New York winters. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Uh, And those years are known in Armenia as the dark and cold years, literally. And fortunately, though, my parents were both well-educated, and even though they were finding odd jobs to make ends meet, they encouraged me and my brother to do really well in school because they believed good education, good skills is kind of the pathway to whatever the future had in store for us to just get ourselves from that situation. But to their surprise, when we started going to school, I was not a good student. By the time it was middle school, I was pretty much branded a trouble kid by every teacher in the school because I'm somewhat extroverted and fairly disagreeable. And schools, traditional schools are not designed for kids like that, right? (laughs) Traditional schools are designed for kids who are slightly more introverted, more conscientious, more agreeable, follow the rules, do the thing. I preferred, instead of paying attention in class, I preferred to play soccer, skip school, and get into occasional fights. So one day, I come home, and my older brother is running around and cracking a very particular joke on me and keeps saying, you know, there comes my gifted brother. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Given my grades, I, <laughs> I can see how that you, he's being sarcastic, but I don't quite get the joke. Turns out my father had decided to enter me into a math contest for gifted kids. Nah, and then it all starts making sense. Like that's now that's a funny joke, right? I didn't want to disappoint him. So I started studying for the math competition and trying to do well, but I, I was not good at math. So when I went to the competition, I did pretty poorly, right? I could barely answer one question and failed pretty miserably. But at the closing ceremony, I watched kids that look just like me go up on the stage, get their first degree diplomas, get their medals. And as it happens, you know, extroverted, disagreeable kids also tend to be highly competitive. And I'm highly competitive. And that competitive nature kicked in. And I vowed to be back and try again. 
So over the following five years, I won every regional, national, and international math competition there was to win. In fact, I set a record for the number of international math Olympiad medals in the country that still hasn't been broken 20 years later. At one of those competitions, a kid mentioned, like, oh, I'm going to MIT next year. So I was like, hey, what's MIT? He looked at me as if I was from another planet and then picked up a sticky note, wrote MIT.edu and said, go apply. They love international nerdy math kids. So I did apply, and a year later, I was on a plane to Boston to go to MIT with $20 in my pocket in a backpack and on a full scholarship to study there for four years. And you can imagine what that did to my career, right? Right after graduation, I got recruited to work at Google. I started doing a lot of interviewing. And during those interviews is when I started to realize those three key things that I collectively called the talent problem, right? That first of all, you know, Talent is the most precious resource humanity has, because even a company like Google was struggling so hard to find people to build that future. And they were like, oh, if we only had more talented people. On the next key piece of it, it was that we're as a society failing. I mean, I had somehow managed to find a way that motivated me through a lot of luck, honestly, to do this. But I knew a lot of kids who, at a very young age, they just get told they're not good at math. They're trouble kids. They're never going to amount to something. They believe it, right? If you tell a middle school kid that they're not meant for this, that they're not gifted while others are, because that's what society calls skills. They call it a gift, which it's not. It's work. It's practice. People believe it. And then last but not least, we're not very good at identifying skills, even when people have that. And once I formulated a talent problem for myself, I was like, there's nothing more important than this that I could be doing. So I pretty much quit Google and started the company. That one math competition. I love it. (laughs) That is so... Wait, I have to go back before I ask my question. But if your dad did not enter you in that math competition, what would you be doing right now? What would I be doing right now? I would probably be fixing cars somewhere in Armenia right now. Uh, oh, literally. Wow. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> right? That's. Uh, but it's such a lucky moment. And uh, so many people don't get that lucky moment. I totally right? get like, it. You know, I totally it's get not it. just like you have to somehow find a way to figure out what's going to motivate an individual, right? Schools just treat everybody the same. But then also, even if you did, I mean, some of my friends who went to those competitions with me never heard about MIT, never got into MIT. And even though they were highly skilled, they couldn't even get a job because their resume didn't say that they had the skill. And it's just really crazy that in we still live in a world where skills are treated in a such a arcane and poorly measurable and demonstrable way. So like, how are we framing our skills? Like, what is it about a modern day resume that's just off? Because I guess AI bots now read the resumes, like we were saying, instead of actual humans or maybe humans. No, it's no. Probably AI, AI is totally reading those resumes. <laughs> well, humans are not very good at reading resumes. AIs are even worse, right? <laughs> Yeah, you know, because I was going to ask, how do you, with your company, how do you ensure that companies can pick out, you know, not just also like the best and most skillful and talented, but also a very diverse pool? Mm -hmm. So the idea, and we can talk about where resumes came from, because that's a, you know, arguably fairly recent phenomenon. Resumes weren't something that existed with humans for a long time, but Our idea has always been that if you just had a way for people to demonstrate their skills to the companies, you can pretty much skip the resume. 
right? So let's say I go apply to a company instead of saying, hey, okay, well, we have very few interviewing resources. So like before you can get to that interview stage where we can ask you how capable you are, well, I mean, don't get me started how biased and bad the interviews are in the first place. But let's say that is it's better than a resume review at least, right? But because that resource is so limited, your companies are typically forced to just look at a resume and try to pick out keywords, such as what university you went to and what companies you've worked at, which obviously leads to those who have those keywords on their resumes get all the doors open for them, and those who don't get locked behind it. Now, in our approach, our customers would say, you know, you applied if you have the baseline qualifications, right? Like, age, location, whatever is like, you know, you have to satisfy those to even be able to work here, then they would give you a code signal evaluation and assessment where you can demonstrate your skills. So if you're a front-end engineer, you will get a link, you would open that link, and that link would let you build a small front-end application. And then those results will get automatically evaluated based on how well you did it, how well you structured your code, how fast did you figure out the requirements, all that are skills that are directly tied to the job. And then that signal becomes the signal instead of the resume that companies use to move people forward, which means that you become blind to all of the bias that exists in someone's resume. And there is a study where they showed where you take the same resume and you put a different name on it, a name that generates bias, and those resumes don't get picked up. So this idea that like you should just put the resume aside and focus on skills, regardless of what the person has done, because that's as a company, that's what you care about. Can they do the job now where they went to school? Right. Because that doesn't matter. And speaking of AI, because we can't not talk about AI, I'm definitely curious how you guys think about AI in your company's future, because I know obviously AI is not going to wipe out full engineering teams or anything like that, but it does seem like companies and startups are trying to build stuff like this as well to sort of remove some of the work that this technical talent does do and automate it and sort of put it under a different structure like that. Mm -hmm. How do you guys feel about adapting to that as people move in that direction and some roles will both change and some will be eliminated. Absolutely. And you're exactly right. What's happening is that the so-called skills gap, right? Every organization talks about skills gap and how the skills gap is getting bigger. The reason the skills gap is getting wider and wider is that technology is changing at an exponential rate. As technology changes at an exponential rate, what technology does is it automates or displaces some skills, but it creates new ones. And this has been happening over and over and over and again, right? And it's interesting because we humans naturally fear that, oh, our jobs are going to be automated and that humans are going to have nothing to do. But what history shows is there was always even more to do, mm -hmm. but the skill set required to do it was different. At the same time, though, you also can't say that humans wouldn't need to learn anything anymore. That's another fallacy when we're like, well, if AI can do it all, why do humans even need to learn anything? Best example I can give is calculators, right? Before calculators came along, most humans who had to, like even people who worked at NASA, there was a whole group who just did manual calculations, like multiplying large numbers together, right? And most of what high school exams were, can you like multiply and divide large numbers? Then calculators came along. What happened? Well, first, it took like 10 years, but we adapted our tests to say, you can have a calculator, right? First, it was oh, let's ban it at all costs, don't let anybody use it. Then it was like, okay, they can have the calculators, but we're just going to change, raise the expectations of what you can do if you can have the calculator at hand. 
And that's what's going to happen here, too, is like instead of saying, oh, ban AI, you can't use AI to do this. No, use AI. But the expectation of what you can do when you have an AI copilot goes higher. On the flip side, on the learning side, right, no one has stopped learning how to add and multiply numbers. You don't have to do it by hand, right, but you still learn it because that understanding of how the mechanics of adding, multiplying, dividing numbers works helps you tell the calculator what to do. And there's a similar idea here, right? Like AI will get good, will get great, and you will be able to do phenomenal things. But unless you as a human understand what it's doing and can guide and direct, you're not going to be able to make use of it. More from this conversation right after a quick break. I wanted to ask how the last couple of years have been, because obviously you guys are not recruiters like the software helps companies Mm -hmm. hire but it's you're not like a recruiting software but there's been so many layoffs so many companies like have paused hiring in certain areas it's just been like a turbulent year couple of years in that space how do you guys adapt to that or sort of like how has it been for you guys last few years with the market being so out of flux especially in the tech market yeah i'll give you two sides to that question but we've got a big big news and announcement i got the confirmation so this will this will be a teaser for you all <laughs> of what you, we've got coming because that's part of what we've been up to the last couple of years. So on the one side, on the hiring side, you're absolutely right. The market has been difficult for individuals. And interestingly enough, we see two things. We see that companies have fewer roles, but the number of applicants for those roles has become larger and larger, right? So from the number of candidates, number of individuals that go through the code signal assessments, it's been getting more, not less. Because before, when the market was really hot, you actually saw that you know there were fewer candidates in the market because people were all employed and they had pretty good jobs that they didn't want to leave. Now, there's fewer jobs, way more people trying to get to it. The second piece of it, you might remember that I said the mission of the company was to discover and develop the skills that will shape the future. Now, we never forgot that mission because we started with the discovery piece. My dream has always been to build skills, not just measure them. The measurement piece was an absolutely important component of it because if you can't measure skills, you can't build them. So we have to do that piece. We have to get companies to start to trust alternative credentials. We have to make sense of a highly chaotic skills world. But the dream has always been Eventually, we want to help individuals build skills. And in this market specifically where AI is disrupting things, when a lot of people find themselves out of job, people want to go back and say, how can I build those skills? Now, on February 8th, we're going to announce a new product called CodeSignal Learn. And CodeSignal Learn is going to be a true revolution in learning. I'll tell you why. First, learning needs to be practice-based. And this is a massive, massive mistake from very early age, where you just like sit and listen to lectures or sit and listen to a teacher telling you something. It's just, it's called passive learning in educational psychology. And passive learning is very passive and boring. And that's not how humans build skills. You build skills by actively engaging in so-called active learning or in skills we were talking about, it's practice, practice, practice. That's how you get good at things. But we typically don't give enough opportunities for people to build those skills to and to have that practice. If you look at most corporate development learning tools, it's video after video after video. 
and they say, oh, why aren't people learning things? Well, because that's not how you build skills. Imagine somebody said, hey, you're going to learn how to drive a car or ride a bike, but you're going to watch a video. My God, imagine. And then we'll, you're going to get on it and go, right? No, that's not how you build that skill, right? It's like, oh, but I watched so many videos of somebody else riding this bike. Why can't I go? Now, Code signal learn is going to be 90% practice and then 10% videos, instruction, and passive learning. The second piece of it is going to be it's all about mastery because the other piece that the entire educational world has been getting wrong so far is you don't teach for course completion. And this also starts at a young age, right? You go to school, you take algebra one in middle school, you get a C, let's say, a lot of people do, and then you're moved to algebra two and expected to do well, which is absolutely crazy. Because how do you expect somebody who got a C in Algebra 1 to actually do well in Algebra 2? And then you're disappointed that they didn't, right? Like teachers would be like, wow, why are you struggling with Algebra? Well, I, you didn't give me the time, the space to actually master something that's way more foundational to this. Now you're like disappointed that I can't do harder things. And the same thing, again, happens. You go to corporate learning, and we measure if somebody has learned something by course completion. So you say, Oh, you've completed this course. Now let's give you a harder course and a harder course and a harder course. And then people fall off, drop off. And they're like, oh, why are we losing so many students? Well, because you keep piling on something that there's no mastery just yet. And this is why having that assessment backbone was so important in company's journey so that we can continuously measure, have you mastered the skill? You haven't? Okay, keep on practicing. So you practice enough where you've actually built the skill and you're ready to move on to the next phase, then the next phase will be fun and interesting and enjoyable for you versus just overwhelming or boring if the next phase is too easy. Because I can keep giving you stuff that is too easy for you and you'll keep getting demotivated. If you've interviewed any gaming founders or game designers, this is a very well-known concept in game design, right? It's called the flow zone. You have to keep somebody in the flow zone. If you give them something that is too repetitive, they get bored and they drop off. If you give them something that is too hard, they get demotivated because it's too exhausting for them to do it. But then the last piece of this, right, because you've got practice, you've got mastery. Those two are not enough. The last piece is one-on-one -on -one tutoring and mentorship. And this is where AI comes in. Because this concept that the best way to teach people is one-on-one -on -one tutoring and one-on-one -on -one mentorship. A, we knew this actually hundreds and hundreds of years ago, because if you go to ancient Greek, all the Greek philosophers were tutors to the aristocrats' kids, right? We knew that this is, a, and then you had their apprenticeship model, right? All the Renaissance painters were the apprentices of somebody else. They learned from somebody else. Then we got public education, and the public education model completely broke this idea that humans learn best in one-on-one -on -one tutoring. And this idea was rediscovered, actually, exactly 40 years ago by Benjamin Bloom, who did this study. He was the best, almost the father of educational psychology at that point, right? He did this study where he took a group of people, randomly split them in two, and then one half basically got traditional instruction, like one instructor, 30 students, and then the other group got one-on-one -on -one tutoring. And what he and his PhDs found is that the group with one-on-one -on -one tutoring does two standard deviations above educational in terms of educational outcomes than the group that didn't. What that means is that people who got average results in one group got A pluses in the one-on-one -on -one tutoring setup. And those who failed got above average in the one-on-one -on -one tutoring setup. But this idea, he called it the Bloom's Two Sigma problem because he was like, we will never be able to solve this, right? Like, how are we ever going to get a tutor per individual in this world where that's very expensive and only accessible to those that can afford it. And even then, there aren't enough tutors. So when I first saw the AI 
the large language model revolution, the first versions of GPT 3.5 and GPT 4, I was like, oh, wow, we might finally have the last piece of the puzzle that can make learning truly, truly individualized and revolutionary at a very, very large scale. So on, on February 8th, we're going to unveil. So by the time people listen to this, it will already be public knowledge. Cosmo, who's our space corgi, he's very cute. And he's an AI tutor. And as you engage with learning, Cosmo is there to help you anytime you get unblocked. And we've been testing it with thousands of people already in terms of alpha and beta testing. And the reaction is like, how have I ever learned something without Cosmo? Because even when you have a human tutor, it's kind of funny, right? You're self-conscious. Like, how many questions can you really ask? Like, you wanna, you don't want to ask a dumb question. And you don't, you're worried about what is that human going to think about you when you ask that question. So going back to your AI comment, I think AI is going to really change how skills are being developed. And this idea that you can have an AI tutor for every learner, whether they're a child or a grown-up, at a massive scale is just really exciting for me. And wait, just so I have it, ignore any sounds you hear in the back. I live in New York. <laughs> so this is, is this going to be for like engineers in corporate environments or is this going to be a learning platform that even like schools and I'm thinking like high schoolers and middle schoolers can use? Great question. So it's going to be both available to individuals as well as companies. So either an individual can sign up and use it. And we're going to have a freemium model where if, if you can't afford to pay for Cosmo, of course, there is a limit to how much you can use and learn with Cosmo, but all the courses and everything is still available. And then companies will be able to sign up and pay for their teams to use this as well. So both sides. And the biggest limiting factor is how accessible are the courses? Because we have, we're teaching thousands of skills here, but certain skills are accessible to some people and not others. Now, in this case, the range is going to be really wide. So from introduction to Python, that my 10-year-old has been using to learn Python and loving it oh to machine yeah, to machine learning engineering for senior staff level individuals at large companies. No, that's so interesting because I definitely, I mean, I had to drop out of pre-calculus in high school and I'm still angry about it. And it's like, why was I in that class when I clearly did not do well in any other math class? But then I saw a tweet, I saw a tweet last month and they were like, Kids grow up thinking they're bad at math, but it's just like a lack of discipline. Like they just need more help. And so I'm like, oh, my gosh, you know, the, like, <laughs> the, yes. But it's interesting because I guess now, yeah, AI tutors can really help. But it also goes into something I've noticed recently or have noticed at least companies popping up and talking to some founders about how. I guess there's kind of been a going back to apprenticeships in a sense, like education is insanely expensive in this country. And there's just a different value now people are seeing and just having skills in like the trade schools again and kind of just learning online and doing something with that. And so it definitely seems like the AI tutoring is, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. It is, right. And I feel like education has been broken for so long and it has failed so many people. Hence the talent problem, right? Like the story you shared, it's exactly what I was going through. And like you said, I would have still been very bad at math, if not the accidental discovery that I tend to like competitions better than traditional schooling. And honestly, even when I studied for competitions, I just at some point stopped going to school and just did it on my own with initially help from my father and then from tutors who just knew more than I did. Without that approach, 
what you described is exactly what happens to millions and millions of kids and students where they just say like, okay, you finish this one, go to a harder one until you drop off. Right. That's why you create a very, very tiny funnel of like some survivors that have somehow survived to the end of that journey. What has it been like fundraising for this product? Because I just imagine like investors were drooling all over this. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully, we didn't even have to fundraise for the Code Signal Learn piece because we've raised a Series C funding a little over two years ago. And because the company on the hiring front and our hire suite has been doing so well, we didn't even have to touch that money. So we could invest a lot of it into building and developing this. But any investors who've seen early versions of this, they do see the future here because the future is limitless, right? That's the idea is that like education creates such a massive economic opportunity, both for companies who are trying to, because companies who close skills gaps faster, become more competitive to become more innovative. They are able to do more faster. So it's a huge, huge opportunity for enterprises. But then there is the individual story, right? Individuals can truly change their lives through building better skills faster and having the access to do it with very affordable prices, because that's the other piece. I mean, university costs have gotten, like it's grown, what, like two or three times faster than inflation. We went from under $100,000 a year to like, what is it, $200,000, $300,000 for university education. It's, then you have the student loan crisis happening across the entire nation because you just have a backward system where universities try to educate and teach skills without connection to the industry. So they oftentimes end up giving degrees and giving skills that are not relevant. So then the students can't even find jobs and they're just ending up holding the student loan when they were promised a bright future if they only went and got that university degree. So the whole thing around how you teach the skills, what skills do you teach? How do you demonstrate to the company, right, that is going to give you that job that you have those skills? That entire cycle is broken. And I've been working with an incredible team from CodeSignal for the literally past seven years to address it. It's a big, hairy, difficult problem, but I think we're this close to actually making a real tangible dent in it. Thinking about where you guys are now, getting ready to launch this big product, thinking about what you talked about earlier, your journey to even coming to the realization that you wanted to launch something like CodeSignal. What has this journey been like for you personally? Coming from Armenia, going to MIT, something you didn't think you were going to do, starting a company, probably something else you didn't think you were going to do. Like, what <laughs> has this journey been like? The journey has been crazy. You know, I often joke that if I knew how hard it was going to be, I'd probably not do it. And that's the, you know, I say the joy of ignorance, right? But sometimes right. it's good not to know how hard things are going to be. Because when you do, you're like, ooh, do I really want to get myself into it? As much as the mission is so important. So I'll be honest, when I was getting into it, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be because I thought, give me two years, we'll revolutionize the entire talent space from hiring to education. But then you get in, you realize that things that have been in inertia for a long time are very difficult to change. Even if it's something that is really good for the world, it's good for everybody involved. Inertia is such a strong force right. that it just carries everybody in a certain direction. And being able to say, no, people, we have to change the way we do things is actually very, very difficult. And then there is also a lot of opportunities for personal growth, right? Like I'd never run a large organization and there's so many things that come with 
trying to get a large group of people to work in a unison together. And the biggest realization has always been around how tough communication is as the number of people grows. Because when, when you're early, when you typically work with, I don't know, five people, 10 people, you just talk to everybody and then you're like, oh, great, we're all on the same page. This is so much fun. Then you get larger, you realize language is such an imperfect communication mechanism because we are pretty much playing broken telephone all day long. Because I say something, I, I say, I, I want to explain A, and then I, what I say sounds more like B, so you understand B. And then you go try to share whatever B you understood with somebody else, and they misunderstand it completely. So then you end up with a group of people with a very different idea of what we're doing and what we should do next. And that becomes really hard because if everybody is not pulling in the same direction and everybody is not aligned on what's the plan, what are we going to do and how are we going to do it, you're just spending more time trying to fix things that were done in the wrong way versus knowing that we're aligned and we're on the same page. So I had to go through a lot of, you know, trying, failing. I wish I had a entrepreneurship tutor as I was going through this to guide me and say, these are the things, these are the places where you're going to fall and crash and burn, like try to figure it out now instead of doing it. But here we are, made it. And I'm sure there's still a lot to learn. Uh, you can never claim that you've figured it all out. And that's one of the big lessons that you learn that, you know, at any given mo moment, you believe that you've figured it all out. And then five years later, you look back and you're like, oh my God, I knew, I knew nothing. <laughs> But eventually you come to terms with that idea, right? That you, you know that there is a lot you still don't know. And I'm curious, if you would go back and restart the company now, would you do anything differently? Knowing like what you just said, you look back and you're like, wow, I knew nothing. Is there something you would change? Or do you think you probably still would have taken the same path? I often compare building companies to climbing mountains. The analogy goes pretty far, even though, you know, when you take it too far, it's pretty different. But the analogy works because if you think about the top of the mountain as your your mission, right? Like that's where that's where you're going. First of all, in many cases, people are not very clear where are they even going. They kind of sort of know the mountain, but they don't know where the top is. And the lack of clarity of what the top is creates a ton of confusion in the company. And I've done the same in the beginning where I didn't clearly verbalize in the very beginning, what's the top of this mountain? The second piece is what path are we going to take to that top? Because that's what people commonly refer to as strategy. And you have to realize that there is a whole bunch of different paths. It's almost there's unlimited paths. When you look at a mountain, you can go every step of the way, you can make a decision to go left, right or straight, and you're changing the paths up there. And it took me a while to understand that the chosen path is your strategy. And you have to be very deliberate about the path you choose instead of almost making it look like a random walk or saying, this is the only way. And I know 100% this is the only way. Right, Because when you're blind to the idea that, no, there's a thousand other possible ways to go there, we believe this is the best way, the chosen way that is going to get us up there. And that being very explicit about it makes it clear of what you're not doing and versus what you are doing. Otherwise, you know, you climb a little and then everybody stops and says, well, why not this way? And then you climb a little bit more and then everybody stops and says, well, why not that way? And you just end up spending more time in fighting of which way you should go. Versus saying, okay, from time to time, we will revisit the strategy, the path we took to go to the top. But when we're in the execution mode, we're climbing and we're pushing it forward and pushing it forward one step at a time. But at the end of the day, I think the, the biggest one that I, I would 
go back and tell myself is that the people you climb with is far more important than anything else. Because life is too short, right? Like, yes, you can be on an amazing mission on a usually a difficult mountain that's worth climbing. But then if you're doing it with people that you don't like or you don't respect or you don't think that they're best people that you could be doing this with, it's just not worth the journey. Because typically it's not about, oh, when are we going to get to the top? It's more about the journey, right? Enjoying the journey as you go. And since you asked, I know we were looking at the site before and saw that you call your employees the signalites, which I think is very fun. (laughs) But because you guys are in that space of helping people get jobs and helping people show their skills in a different way, how do you think about hiring? Or how have you built your team up knowing kind of the strategy that you guys just have for the company? Yeah, we... Typically go about it in the same exact way that we tell our customers to do it, right? Like we rarely look at a resume until very, very late in the process. Like when I go into an interview, I I do not look at a resume. I would look at skill evaluation results and what skills have people demonstrated. But I know very well that if I look at a resume, it's going to bias me massively. And I'm going to go into an interview having almost made up my mind, even though I don't want to. Right. Right. You should go into an interview with an open mind, trying to understand the person in front of you. Ideally, you have their skill set already evaluated in a unbiased manner, which is what we do in our case. So when you go into the conversation, you're focused more on culture and motivation and whether this is going to be a fit. Because another thing that we realize deeply is that it's always a two way street and it's always about matching. And if it's not a match on both ends, you're just setting yourself up for a failure. But culturally, with Signalites, we say that the company is all about context, freedom, and responsibility in that order. Because what happens typically in organizations, and I've worked at very large ones, is that I always felt disappointed that people don't feel the responsibility for the whole company and for the whole mission. So I always wanted to build a company in which every individual feels responsible for the success of the mission. And unfortunately, especially at the larger organizations, people worry more about when am I going to get promoted? What's the next thing for me versus are we going to succeed as a group? So from the get-go, I was like, I want to create an organization in which people feel that responsibility, that ownership. But then I was like, wait, but we can't do this without giving people freedom to make the choices. Because you can't, a lot of companies say like, be an owner, feel like an owner, but they don't give you the choices and the options and the freedom to do what an owner would do, right? So then we said, okay, we have to create an environment in which people have the freedom to make the right choices for the company and feel that responsibility and take action to drive the company forward and drive the mission forward. The other piece, which is the foundational layer, was that, well, we can't give people freedom to do things if they don't have context. Because you can say, hey, you've got freedom to do things, but if I don't know what's going on in the company, what right. matters, right? If I don't have that CEO level context, then how am I ever supposed to make the right calls, even if I am highly competent? So that's why we think about it in those three layers where at the company, we're extremely transparent. Everybody to an intern knows how much money we've got in the bank, what happened. All of the executive team notes are just shared openly with everybody in the company on a weekly basis. So we drive towards like extreme transparency because I know that transparency is going to lead to people having context and then being able to take advantage of the freedom to make decisions on a daily basis that advance the whole mission forward. And we're pretty much right at time, but just to kind of wrap it up with a nice little bow, I know you're launching into big product. You guys are nine years in, if I'm doing my math. 
correctly. I was also not good at math in high school. Um, but <laughs> um, what is next for you guys? And sort of how are you thinking about the rest of the year? Code Signal Learn is Cosmo is 100% the big, big thing. We've been working on this so hard and so long. And it's beautiful to watch the mission and the journey come full circle. Because I did start the company with that very specific discover and develop the skills that will shape the future. And that develop piece has always been like, oh, I really want to get to it. Mm-hmm. So it's really exciting and fun to get to it. And I can't wait to get it into more people's hands and have people use it and see where the world goes. Because we're in a very interesting phase. Because on the one hand, you've got a lot of tension in the world. A lot of people are talking about a World War Three. You've got economy not doing so well. And then you've got this AI boom and this AI revolution happening. So I think it's a turbulent phase. But I've always believed that each of us have to focus on what we can control and try not to obsess too much over things we can't control. And I think for me and for the company, it has always been we can help the world go beyond resumes. We can help the world discover and develop those skills. So let's focus and do an excellent job at that and then hope that everything else works out to the best of the human race. Perfect. Well, that sounds like a lovely future. So we're going to end there. But thank you so much, Tigrid, for coming on. Thank you, Becca. Thank you, Dom. And that was our conversation with Tigrin. Dom, what was the lie? The lie was that the AI tutor is actually a corgi named Cosmo, not a golden retriever named Comet. Oh, listeners, maybe you are like, obviously that's a lie. Who would name a golden retriever Comet? But of course, I would love to name a corgi Cosmo. But Dom, in all seriousness, what did you think of the conversation? I thought it was really, really cool, actually. I liked it. I really liked speaking to him. I loved listening to him talk. And I actually really like the product. This is a really cool AI product. And I think it captures what people want and what people can like use it for. It's not just one of those random AI things. Mm -hmm. I feel like there's like a really nice practical use for this. Definitely. And I just think it's interesting because we've been hearing about the concept that the company is based on for years about too many. I just saw, I think, so Massachusetts cut the college degree requirement for 90% of their state jobs, which I think it's interesting you see movement at like the nonprofit level and at these more government levels about getting rid of those strict requirements for people to work at jobs that of course they would be good at otherwise they're just as t kept saying they're like missing that one line on their resume that automatically cuts them out even though they'd be totally fine at the job so it's fun to actually see like a company not only taking that approach but building something so that other companies can do that but i do wish i had asked because this was something i'd written down before we talked to him but i just got so enthralled in the conversation that I didn't end up asking it. But I'm curious if they've actually been able to track if that has worked or how well that has worked. Like Instacart's one of their customers, according to the website, like how many roles like has Instacart hired for that wouldn't have otherwise had not using this platform, if you know what I mean. I know, because I was also thinking about that, especially in terms of diversity, if all these tech companies are using this to kind of build a more diverse workforce, where is that diverse workforce based off of the numbers that have come out? That was definitely something I was also thinking about. Yeah, we should have asked that looking back. Yeah, because I mean, I assume if they keep signing on and like they keep growing and more companies are signing on based on like the data and sales stuff that they have. But of course, you don't want to assume. But I feel like it probably does work, at least to some degree. You know, well, I really love the idea of going back to apprenticeships or like in looking at things as kind of a skill set. I remember, I forgot when, maybe like two years ago, I spoke to 
what is his name? Yuan Blair, Tony Blair's son, who has this company <laughs> that focuses on training like it's like an apprentice model training company to skill people up rather than focus on education. Because obviously in the UK, things are like really, well, things are classes here, but things are more openly classes over there. And so kind of going back to the apprenticeship model and giving people skills was a way to, you know, it, it helps a lot of people. And I think we definitely see that a lot in technology now, or at least from what I see from a lot of people where tech has become more accessible because you can kind of just buy a class online or like a Salesforce class and you can just get the skills and then you can go into coding. So I really, really like I like the idea of a product that focuses a lot on skills, especially because student debt is so high and education is so expensive. It's like, let's just get this over with. Just give me the skills. That's what people were doing back in the day anyway. Like he was talking about the Italian Renaissance painters. Yes. You know, I don't. Let's bring it back. No, I mean, it's so true because I mean, I don't know how you felt about going to college, but like going to journalism school, my friends and I always had this joke and not to say I didn't learn anything from any of the classes I took or anything like that. But like once we hit junior year, I learned more from working on the school newspaper because it was just practicing. Like he said, like so much of learning these things is just practice and practice and practice and getting feedback and feedback and feedback. And we always were like journalism should be a two year trade program because you really like a four year full degree. It really doesn't make much sense when you start to you're going through it and you're like, oh, I'm taking these classes senior year. Am I really actually going to learn anything from them or am I just going to practice in a different way with a different set of feedback? So it's like that stuff has always rung true to me. I didn't study journalism at all. And then I was so worried. But then someone was like, it's more of like a practicality. Like you just have to go out there and then you do it over and over again. And then you get better because journalism is also like an apprenticeship thing, I would argue. Oh, yeah. You usually have like mentors or like the editors or like back in the day when we all went into a newsroom. You know, you had some, I don't know, I imagine some editor yelling at you and saying, this is how we did it back in my day. And then you went out to the field. I mean, when I, my first journalism job, when I worked for the local paper, the editor in chief said, hey, let's go investigate hogs. And he pulled up in his car and we just rolled around the city. And that was <laughs> like, those are, but that's not something you learn in school. Right. I do think that there is a way for AI to help people do things like that or at least guide them in the right way or something. There, There is something there. No, for sure. I completely agree with you, especially what you said earlier. I mean, I say this all the time where I'm like, I feel like I'm always like, wow, an AI company that's like actually doing something, <laughs> like solving an actual problem. But this definitely feels that way because it's like the one-on-one -on -one tutoring aspect to use AI, especially because it's like, you're not asking chat GPT these questions and they're pulling the answers from like God knows where. It's like, no, it's an AI system based on what they would teach and the information that they have. So it's like, that's a great use case for it because if they're building their own model to teach something specific, if they're putting in the right information, which we assume they are, it's putting out the right information. So I agree, like the one-on-one -on -one tutoring concept of like a closed loop AI system like this one is like, that makes so much sense. Yeah, and it might freak people out less where they're like, okay, it's like the calculator. Like he said, it's something that, you know, I'm thinking like and students can use this to help them, but not, I guess, replace the knowledge that they have, but to just enrich it in a way. I don't know. I keep thinking back to little Dominic and how she had the drop out of pre-calculus, which honestly, I saw something on Instagram where they were like, we learned about the rhombus once and have never heard of that shape again. The rhombus, yeah. I was like, that is so true. Like, I have never heard of that shape again. But maybe if I would have stayed in pre-calculus or 
past geometry, uh, maybe I would, I don't know, maybe I would be doing math or something right now. I love how kind of competition fueled him to become this coder and this mathematician guy, because that's, I was like, that's so relatable. You know, you just competition fueling you to outdo your enemies. Like, I was like, I totally get it. Totally understand. No. And like, what you're saying about pre-calc that's like so true to me and I was thinking about it when he was talking about how like you just complete the course you don't necessarily know the information when I was a senior in high school I took honors calculus and the way my school was set up almost every kid went to college it was like 96 percent or something it was just like the town dynamics of where I grew up and that honors calculus class they taught a college level calculus book and they taught only three chapters all year because our teacher was like Mrs. Utter, she was like, you will have to relearn all of this your freshman year. Like if you're taking this class and you're all going to college, which is like how my school was set up, it was like, you will literally all have to retake this next year. And she's like, I actually want you to understand it. So we are going to like break it down so small, micro, micro, micro pieces, have like a whole test on like a clause in a chapter, essentially, because you're all going to have to take it again. And I want you to actually understand it. So when you move on, you know what you're doing. And I always thought that was such a smart approach. And then I did not take it in college, suckers. Um, But everyone else probably did. (laughs) They were not doing that for me in the Florida education system. I'm telling you, (laughs) they just moved me right along. Okay, but why did I have to drop out? And then I went into what like what was called the dumb person math. Did they call it that? (laughs) Well, I went to dumb person math, which was financial math. And I was when I tell you I was balancing like a household of four in that little class, I was doing taxes. And I'm like, well, who won? You know, look at us today. Who won? It's tax season. Yeah. Who's winning? (laughs) You are winning. You've never seen a rumbus again. (laughs) But look at this. That's all I have to say. (laughs) But yes, AI tutors. (laughs) Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori Davis. Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Music.